The Tim Hill Podcasts, ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Victoria. So Victoria is going to tell us all about her life. So Victoria, if you can tell me when and where you were born, if you can describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to and the education that you received. So, Victoria, here you go. You're in the room. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I was born in 1979 in a town called Wishick, North Dakota. It is in the southern part of the state. And maybe about a population back then was around 1,000, 1,200, something like that. Very small school. Uh, K through 12 school, actually. So everybody knows everybody and graduated from there, grew up there my whole life, graduated from there. And life was kind of carefree. Um, I, I was a latchkey kid. Both of my parents had worked. And so I, I, you know, kids back then would ride their bikes around town and there was no worry or concern and come home after, you know, before dark, sometimes after dark, (laughs) (laughs) but well, I wish my environment was like the black Hills because that would have been beautiful and all of that. But no, in my area, it's very flat and sunsets for miles, but um, yeah, just a really small community where everybody knows everybody. And, um, but my childhood was kind of different from everyone else because my father was diagnosed with cancer when I was, uh, six. And Mm -hmm. so he was sick for almost two years before he passed away. And so my childhood, much of it was spent with other people being bounced around from house to house and different caregivers and things. And, and so my childhood was very different because there were no other kids that I knew who were going through something like that. Hmm. Uh, so I had to grow up fast. So that was, was that sort of relatives that were, were looking after you? I, I guess your mother was doing full-time care for your father. Well, um, he was and- doctoring and so he was, he was a veteran. And so he was going to the VA hospital, which was about three hours away. And so, you know, she would be gone with him. Um, and so it was my oldest sister. She was like 16, 17. Um, and then I had an older brother too. He's five years older than me. Hmm. So I guess that they looked after you a bit, um, and neighbors looking in on you, I guess. Yep. Neighbors and friends, like my parents, um, my friends, parents, um, I Hmm. stayed with friends sometimes. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, really rocky time in my life, unstable in yeah. a lot of ways, but yet still carefree because, you know, we could just go around town and yeah. no one worried, you know, and everyone kind of looked out for each other too. Hmm. Not not like it is nowadays where <laughs> you go out, you're like, you get stabbed or shot. But um, yeah, so, so at the age of six, you, you, your father diagnosed with cancer and, and he died two years later so what you're eight at the time were you allowed to go to the funeral 
I how did. Was your grieving, mm-hmm. How was your grieving process at that time? Well, I wasn't there Have when it, he he was. I wasn't there when he passed away. He he passed away in the nursing home. Uh, it had hmm. gotten to the point where my mom couldn't care for him anymore, and she was still working too. Um, and but I did go to the funeral. And I just remember a lot of adults walking around. And the one thing I remember someone saying to this day, I've never forgotten it, is she doesn't understand what's going on anyway. Mm. Because of my age, you know, they thought, well, she's only eight. She doesn't really know and understand what's going on. So no one cared to sit down with me and really talk about what was happening and what, how this was going to change things. And, well, how do I feel? Um, th- there really wasn't a lot of communication about grief. Yeah. So what were your feelings at that time then? So people were saying that because you're eight, you didn't understand what was going on, et cetera. But, did but you- I did. But I did. You know, I saw my dad in the casket, and then he was gone. And, I, you know, when we aren't, when we, when people don't communicate with us, what's the truth of, of grief and how to grieve, you know, in a healthy way, children will make up their own stories Hmm. and that can be dangerous too. And for me, it was like, he's in a casket, he goes in the ground and that's it. I didn't have an understanding that I could still talk to him or I could still have this ongoing relationship with him. I could still feel connected to him. And so when he passed away, it was like this. We didn't talk about it. I didn't get to, I didn't um, have a way to express how I was feeling. And so everything was stuffed down and, and really disconnected. Mm. Like we, I was really disconnected from what had happened. Um, in the meantime, you know, within a year, I was molested. And again, when I was 12. And mm. so, and my mom remarried in that time as well. So there was just a lot of grief and trauma and change because my sister had left. She was like a second mom to me. And she left. She graduated mm. like two months after my um, dad passed away. And she joined the Air Force. So she was gone, gone. Mm. So it was a lot of change in my life. And I was just, I I really felt like I was alone. And I would cry and I would be told I was a crybaby. And I would, so I would hide to cry. I would go under my bed. I was found under my bed, Mm. falling like asleep under my bed so many times in the linen closet. One time there was a search party sent out for me. Like people were looking for (laughs) me and they couldn't find me. Here I was in the linen closet asleep Mm. because I would hide to hide to cry. Yeah. And it's no fault to my, to my mother, right? She, she didn't know what to do and she didn't know how to process her own grief. And when we don't understand how to do that as adults, we can't be that role model for children. It's really difficult to emulate yeah. what is healthy grieving when we don't know how to grieve ourselves. And I, and, I, and I guess her moving on that quickly, I mean, remarried within a year. Two I years, yep. Within two years, uh, that's 
can have a, a detrimental effect. I mean, that's that's going to affect you. Uh, depends what the relationship was with you and, I guess, the stepfather. And we did get along. There was no issue really there. It's just they didn't get along <laughs> real well. I mean, they did at mm. first, but they would. He was um, a long haul trucker, and so she would be gone with him a lot. And so I was, when I say I was a latchkey kid, I, I really was alone much of the time. Mm. My, my brother was, you know, 15, 16 by that time and had a job and kind of did his own thing. And so I was really kind of alone. Yeah, so, so I guess you were, what, 10, 11 by that time? I was, I would have been 10 when she remarried. Yeah. Mm. And he would have been... 15 my brother and so yeah he was kind of off doing his own thing and i was just left to roam the streets i guess you know <laughs> be the you know take be, run around town which was again which was probably a good thing that there weren't those other concerns or worries right mm. growing up in a small town that could have very gone gone a different way had we lived like in a big city or something like that yeah. you know where you're exposed to different things and different characters. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think you bring up a good point in just how our environments really shape too the paths of our lives, because yeah. like I said, had I been in a bigger urban city, yeah, who knows what path, yeah, who knows what path I would have yeah. ended up down. So, if you can, if you talk about, you said earlier that you were molested at some stage. So how and who did it? I don't care to discuss who did it, um, okay. like a name. I mean, I'll say that it was someone that my family knew, um, which is often the case. Usually, yeah, yeah. typically, it is someone it's, it's, the family knows or a family yeah. member. It's either someone yeah. you know or a family member. I mean, um, that, that that is a, a generally it's it's generally not a stranger. Not generally. Mm -hmm. no, not generally. So yeah. Yeah, that was that was um I mean that took me well into my thirties until I've actually probably in the last five years that I've really mm. addressed that, to be honest. Um Yeah. Yeah. It you know, and as a teenager, you know, one of the things growing up in a small town, there isn't a lot to do. And so when you when you do mm. get up in the upper high school, you tend to go to parties then, right? There's there's yeah. not much to do. So on the weekends, that's what you do. And and that's what I did. Uh, for the most part, though, I I had a pretty good understanding of what was right and wrong. Um, mm. And so I, I really didn't get too out of control in high school, but in my early twenties, that's, that's when I made up for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's when alcohol really became my vice mm. and was starting to take me down a path that was leading me into a train wreck of a life. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, my husband came into the picture and, changed my life really i mean and he had mm. i graduated with him but we never dated or anything until seven years after we graduated mm. so we were friends um but yeah him coming into my life changed my life 
for sure. Yeah. So how did your high school go then? So you, you, you've gone through school. I mean, you're a bit of a latchkey kid anyway, so you, you're sort of coming and going during your teenage years. Um, how was yeah. your schooling? I think I, I, mean, I managed. Did, did it affect you at all? In my younger years, for sure. Like I was very, um, I was a very distracted child. I was tardy a lot. Um, I had, I, I did have stomach issues. I was actually diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome when I was 16. Uh, that was grief, actually. <laughs> I look back mm. now and I know that that was <laughs> grief. Um, but for the most part, grades wise, like into my high school years, um, I really did try. I had to try because I wasn't a good tester. Um, mm. And I, I excelled in some areas more than others. But um, I was overall a good student. I graduated with honors. Um, mm. But again, it was um, it, it was just my own determination um, to, yeah, I guess to be as good as I could be. Yeah. Despite my circumstances. Mm. So you graduated high school. What did mm -hmm. you do after that? Did, did you go straight into the military or or, or or did you go to college, university? Well, I had every intention of going to college. I packed up the car. I went to the dorm. I moved into the dorm. And the weekend, like two days after I got there, I had, well, that following Monday, uh, school was supposed to start like Tuesday or Wednesday. I had a conversation with the financial aid office and um, I panicked. I had no idea how I was going to pay for it. And I was going to go for clinical lab science because I love science. And uh, as quickly as I got there is as quickly as I dropped out. I didn't even give myself a chance. Mm. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I could financially take the pressure of having to come up with the money um, and it would take another two years before I would join the military as a means to attend college, as a means mm. to help pay for college. Uh, in the meantime, I worked two jobs and just, um, yeah, I was just kind of trying to figure myself out, figure out what I wanted to do. So I joined the National Guard at 20. I was one of the oldest ones at boot camp. <laughs> Because usually it is people right out of high school. Um, and that was the first time I really saw myself accomplishing something I never thought I would be able to. Like I didn't, I could, I could, you had to do one push up to be able to go. And I barely got that one push up. <laughs> like barely. I was so weak. And I mean, I excelled. I excelled at boot camp. I, in fact, I the most push I did the most push-ups of all the females in my platoon, 72 in two minutes at that oh, time. <laughs> and so I really saw myself transform through that process and looked in the mirror and saw myself differently than I'd ever seen myself before. Like I can do hard things. Hmm. And it wasn't easy, but I um I think I did it to prove something to myself, I suppose. But I came from a family of service 
Um, my dad yeah. was in the military. My grandfather was in World War II. My dad was in Vietnam. My sister joined the Air Force. My brother was in the National Guard. My other brother was in the Navy. And so every one of us kids joined the military. And yeah. it was just something I felt called to do, I guess, for mm -hmm. that reason, but also to pay for college. So where was your training in the National Guard? Is it a national center or is it, is it sort of in, just in the state? Uh, I went to Fort. Um, oh, my gosh. I just had a brain fart. <laughs> Fort Benning? Nope. It was in Missouri. Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Same place my dad actually was at for his basic training. All right. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. So I guess it, 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 they, they, they tend to, because everything's bigger in America, how big was the the training establishment there? How many um, recruits were going through training roughly? Oh, gosh. I couldn't even tell you, honestly. But um, I did go during an off time. I went like in February. And so school is still going on at that time. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, although I was one of the oldest ones there, um, most people had already, they were already graduated. They weren't, because you could in the States, let's say at 17, you can go to basic training. You can yeah. split up your training. Um, but I couldn't even tell you how many, um, it was male and female, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so there was no distinction of in that way. Um, but Fort Leonard Wood traditionally is mostly men. Mm. So what was the training? So I, I guess same you, as you Army. Normal, same as the Army. You same as your, Army, Normal yeah. drill, weapon handling. Yep. Your first aid, your CBRN, all that sort of stuff, I guess. Yep, so gas mask. What, what, yep. Yeah. So, what did you um, what did you specialize in? I yeah, I a medic actually. I was a medic. All right. Yeah. So my training was it was actually one of the longest trainings because you had um, yeah. mine was five months. So I went to basic training and then I went straight from basic to my AIT, my advanced individual training, is what it's called in Fort Sam, Houston, Texas. And so that's where I did my, the medic portion. Basically, um, you got certified as an EMT. Yeah. It's the same kind of program you went through. So, and I loved it. I love that. I love that training. It, um, cause I was doing CNA work, a certified nursing assistant before I'd actually yeah. joined the military too. I was doing that in high school. And so I had medical background already. Um, so yeah, it seemed like a good fit. Yeah. So two years later, then you found yourself going to college at what twenty two. Um, actually, when I came back from my training, um, I let's see. Yeah, I was kind of I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I ended up getting a job as a um, well, if my first job was working, I would. Um, so here in the States, we have what's called the TTY, uh, where people in the deaf community call, like if I wanted to call someone who was deaf, I would yeah. call TTY and then TTY, the person would, I was like, I'm like the in-between person for someone who is deaf and someone who's hearing, basically. So you're typing up a message for Yes. Them. So as, uh, as you are talking, I'm typing what you're saying and the deaf person, it comes across their machine. Hmm. And so whatever the deaf person then types, I read 
I speak to the hearing person. So a fascinating job. It was, I, I learned Sounds a lot like about, that. yeah, I learned a lot about the deaf community and, you know, they struggle with just like everybody else and their conversations are just yeah. like everybody else. And, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, it was very interesting. How often do you have to tell somebody to slow down when they're talking? Uh, you had to or, type pretty fast. I mean, you couldn't have that yeah. job unless you could. I could. That's one thing. I'm a fast typer. Um, so not typically. So, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> after that, though, I ended up um, I wanted something more. That I could like as a career. And so I mm -hmm. found a job as a um, lab or actually a, um, what do you call it? Phlebotomist oh, working well. at, a, at a blood bank. And then I ended up transitioning into the lab and then I had started college then. So it wasn't right away, even when mm. I came back, it was, it took me a little bit. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I was probably 21, 22. I did a year and a semester um, and I was going for. Um, what was I going for? I think I was still I was still pursuing the clinical lab science because I was working in the lab too yeah. at that time. That was very interesting to me. Uh, but then I ended up getting my orders to be deployed. Um, my husband and I had gotten married, and then I got my orders to be deployed. He was coming off of a deployment with the National Guard, just as I was supposed to go on a deployment, and so he volunteered, and he deployed with me. So we both deployed to Iraq. Oh, lovely. Horrible place, Iraq. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's, out of all the places I've been, I think Iraq is probably the one place I don't want to go, go back to. I didn't enjoy Iraq much at all. Um, I was I was based out of Basra uh, at the airport, and I spent, uh, I actually spent four months there because I would have been there for six months, but at a four-month point, um, the... I got called into the Padre's office. I thought, it's odd. So Padre called me in and sat me down and said, look, just had a message from JCCC, which is the Joint Casualty and Compassionate um, Cell, saying that your wife has been diagnosed with cancer and she starts her treatment on the Monday. This is like Friday afternoon. He says, go and get your kit packed. You're going home. And my was um, that, that that following sort of 24, 36 hours, I don't know what was going on. But, um, yeah, they, they flew us back. I mean, you, you couldn't fault how I was treated. And, and, you know, when I was out of there, and I was fairly happy to be out of there, really. I mean, the job I was doing was pretty thankless um, because I was in psychological operations. My remit was to um, come up with a campaign to enhance the... Iraqi police service in the eyes of the local population. <laughs> Might as well just have flogged the dead horse mm -hmm. <laughs> because they've been so corrupt and all the rest of it for donkey's years. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a waste of time. But I mean, I got, I got to travel around sort of southern Iraq a lot and I went up to Baghdad uh, for, a, for a conference um, and nearly didn't come back. Um, yeah wasn't the most friendliest country I've been to. But I've done three tours of Afghanistan and I loved it. Really? Yeah. 
So doing the same job, I mean, I'm psychological operations, and I had a great time, really did. But there you go. That's what happened on that tour. So I didn't enjoy Iraq at all. So where were you based in Iraq? Uh, well, actually, we were, I personally was put in a place where there was no other people until we, we got there. There was actually New York National Guard was there. They had just gotten there maybe a matter of weeks or maybe a month before we did. And before they were there, there was nobody there. Like we had nothing. Like we mm. had porta potties. We had to burn our own crap. We had to have oh, chow yeah. brought in. Um, mail we got once a week. I mean, we were in the middle of kind of nowhere. It was um, they call it was Balad, by Balad, mm. um, Fab Orion. It was called, and our job was to um, clear the MSRP, not the MR. The I always say MSRP. MSR. MSR, yeah, the main supply yeah. route uh, of bombs. That was our job. We were called the Trailblazers. And and where was that from and to? Um, I can't remember we, how. North? We would go south and north. We would go as far south from as Baghdad. We, were we, in Baghdad. we didn't go that far. We didn't go that far. See, like what, that far south. Like far. I can't. Where um. Saddam had a bathhouse there. I just cannot remember the town anymore of what it was called. He had a bathhouse there, though. All right. Because um, um, we, uh, the furthest north that we were operating was um, 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 Nazaria Asamwa. We were up as far as Asamwa, which was kind of three quarters away to Baghdad on on the MSR south. So that was coming from. From Baghdad going south, you come to a somewhere where the Dutch were. The Dutch were operating there. And they also got the, the Japanese come and join them there. It was the first time the Japanese had deployed outside of Japan since the Second World War. Wow. And that was a that was a massive, massive deal. And I, I was on uh, advising on that campaign because what they really, really didn't want is a Japanese soldier to get injured. <laughs> but they were there to do a specific project that I think they were building a, a something to do with schools and uh, and some infrastructure stuff that they were going to do. Um, so they were in a fairly benign area, as it were. Um, and then we worked with the, the Italians in Nazaria, and then we was working with our guys in um, in Basra City and out, out to Alamara and, and all the way down to Um Kazar. So we, we, we covered the whole of the south, basically. And I spent a lot of time driving up and down that main MSR. Um, we had two M, uh, GMC envoys and, uh, I mean, big V8 jobbies. <laughs> An endless amount of fuel. <laughs> so we were driving around at all 100 mile an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't and care how much fuel we used. Well, we drove about 15 to 20 miles an hour in like World War II equipment. Like we had yeah. Our, our, yeah, it took us quite some time, several months before we even got like armored vehicles. Hmm. Um, Was this fairly early on then, sort of 2003, 2004 mm -hmm. time? Yep, yep. Yeah, that's why I was there. I was on uh, 2004. Do you know, do you remember Fob's Biker? No, we went into Camp Victory. Um, we went into the green zone. Okay. Uh, when I was in, when I was up in Baghdad, um, 
but we had different fob names when we we were down south. I mean, Basra City was the main battle group. Um, we were at the airport in in Basra or just outside Basra, um, and then I went over to a, a, say these other places, Asamwa and Nazaria and places like that. So working with different troops. So it was a it was an interesting time, but it was a it was a thankless job actually. But there you go. Yeah, it's a smell you never forget, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there you go. That's that's Iraq. Yeah. So how long did you do in Iraq then? Because you guys do a lot longer tours than us. You, you they they sting you for about a year, don't they? Year, yeah. Yep. Without any R and R. Well, that's the interesting thing. Um, we weren't going to take R and R because we were there together. So mm -hmm. we didn't see a reason to. Um, and then they had a a drawing contest. The battalion had a drawing contest, and the winner would receive a trip to Qatar. And um, I entered, and apparently I won. <laughs> and so um, it was to come up with some sort of slogan or some sort of design for the battalion. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, my husband and I won a trip to Qatar. Um, little did I know, two months later, I would find out I'd be pregnant. How did it happen? You got up to mischief in Qatar. <laughs> and it would just so happen to be our one-year anniversary. So we had gotten married in August, deployed in December, and yeah, we we just didn't have much of a newlywed life at all. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I came home with a child. Um, so my I was obviously by the time I found out I was pregnant, I was I was already two months along. Um, I had no clue, uh, yeah. really. <clears throat> and uh, and did they did they lift you out of there early or, or yes, or yeah, actually, as soon, it, soon as you found out, then. Then you was out of there, like, because they don't want pregnant soldiers. Yeah, it, was, it took about it took about three months. Mm. It was actually I was three months shy of the one year, so yeah. I had almost made it the whole deployment. But um, I was very much shamed. We were scolded, <laughs> and uh, my our battalion commander had actually made a special trip just to talk to us and said that um, he was going to see to it that I had my baby in Fort Carson and I would do my maternity leave at Fort Carson. Like I would be alone without family and have this baby. What's and Fort Carson? Is that Fort is Carson's that your... in, no Fort Carson is in Colorado, but that's where we had our um, training before we deployed. Uh, so yeah, he said, you're going to go back to Fort Carson and that's where you're going to stay all by yourself. And you're going to have your baby there and you're going to do maternity leave there. And, um, that's very kind of him. Yeah, it was, <clears throat> I had enough guilt and shame. I was carrying myself. I didn't need his, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a very, it was a very traumatic experience actually. Um, uh, because I, I knew what my husband was doing and here I was leaving and here mm. I, he knew I was pregnant and I was going to be by myself. 
Cause I went, I left thinking that that was going to happen. Mm. So I get to, it clearly person. didn't. I mean, it I, clearly I, didn't. Not, no, once, once clearly that, not that heartless. Well, no, once, <laughs> once I got on American soil, he had no, yeah. he, he had no jurisdiction or any, like there was nothing he could do about it. So of course mm. they sent me home. It took another two weeks. Like it, it was a long process until I yeah. finally got home. But that's something I don't talk a lot about, to be honest, um, because I think it's still something I'm processing through. Um, just a lot of the shame and the, the guilt that I, I still carry. Well, I mean, look at it this kind of way. They gave you the opportunity to have a, a a few days away in a in a safe environment with your husband, what did they expect you was going to do? Because I guess when you was in Iraq, when you were in operations, that's frowned upon. Fraternising with your husband is kind of frown. Yeah, we we don't let it happen, in, but it does. I mean, well, they kept us apart actually too. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. They kept us apart. Like they said, you're going to be in this unit. You're going to be in that unit. And oh, we right. were like we they kept us apart. And then they put you together and they wonder why. <laughs> well, and then the thing is, is we actually were like, we're married. Yeah. It's not like we're boyfriend, girlfriend. Like it takes a week for me to get mail. I can't even talk to him. We're married. Like it's, it's yeah. even, it was worse for us than it was worse. I, I think it was almost worse for us being there, knowing what each of us was doing. Cause I left the wire every day. So did he yeah. knowing what we were doing, clearing roadside bombs and not being able to communicate. Unlike soldiers who were there could call home. Right. And talk yeah. to their loved ones. We didn't even have that. And so finally we petitioned and they let us be at the same base, but then they still said, well, you're still going to be on separate, separate, separate Good platoons. Patrols. You're going to go on yeah, separate patrols. And, and that was fine. We completely understood yeah. that. But well, yeah, you were able to go to the, to the cookhouse and, and, and have chow together. Or weren't even not even because we were on opposite shifts. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we didn't get to see each other a whole lot and we didn't even get to sleep in the same quarters. Right. They kept us completely mm. separate even when we were together. And so, but now it's like, even after that, it's so different now. Married couples, mm. they live together. It's so different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, they were really, it was, it was very unkind experience to say the least. <laughs> but you came through it. You survived we it. Did. What happened? Yeah. Did, did, did you stay in the National Guard after uh, you gave birth or, or did you um, fall apart out? It took, let's see, I stayed in for about another six months. Um, my husband was still in. And so we didn't want to risk both of us deploying again, having children. And so I decided that I would get out. And he was actually up for reenlistment and he was thinking he was going to reenlist. So I got out. Um, he then ended up not reenlisting. Um, but yeah, I, um, I did get out and I don't know, sometimes I kick myself for that. Um, but you know, we can't beat ourselves up no. for decisions. Well, I guess you're st still in talk to all the VA, um, benefits. Yes. Um, yeah, that's been huge. 
that was huge for us, especially early on in our marriage, you know, with mm. having a kid and all of that. And yeah, um, very grateful for the VA for sure. Yeah. So you got out of the, uh, out of the national guard. So what did you do? I mean, had, cause, cause you're only halfway through your, your, your university, your college course. I didn't go back. back? I I was going to go back. That was actually part of the pro like before I deployed, I was going to transfer colleges and go into nursing. And so we had actually just bought a place in a different city and it had just moved. Like we literally moved into the place, got (laughs) our orders. And so we didn't even get to live in the place. (laughs) We didn't even get to live in the place before we left. And, uh, what and did you also, do with the place? Did, did you rent it out while you were away? Or no, my sister, my sister-in-law took care of it and looked after it and things. But then at least I had a place to come home to, right? When I came yeah. home early, um, so it worked out the way it should have, I guess. But um, I ended up um, having three children in four years, <laughs> so um, I didn't go back to college, and <laughs> and. Uh, because I had my hands full, obviously. Oh, but but um, I ended up opening a business. I started a photography business, and that was my life for a good ten years. I was shooting, and um, and then I just felt like you know it's kind of meant for more, and so I started blogging mm. and writing. And 2014, I just um, so so let's just have a quick look at um your photography business what sort of photography were you doing were you doing like the the wedding photographer or were you um were, were you doing sort of commercial stuff i started out What's... in weddings yeah i started out yeah. in weddings actually yeah so... so so you did a bit of wedding photography i mean that's a nightmare in itself isn't it because yeah you really, really don't want to muck it up. Were you using wet film at this time, or were you you gone fully digital? I was digital, and I it had, I didn't plan to do weddings. I was asked to do a wedding, and then it snowballed from there. Mm. Um, so that's how I got my start was in weddings, and then ultimately I ended up doing my favorite were seniors, high school seniors, and All right, for for the yearbook mm-hmm. and. Um, and families and and I did do weddings yet until towards the end there and then I was tr- starting to venture into like beauty and glamour um but I just decided I was I don't know my youngest was starting kindergarten and I was kind of having a midlife crisis and questioning my life and what do I want to do when I grow up and um <laughs> <laughs> right I'll, I'll just put this out there now on I, I I'm going to be like uh, the Beatles, when I'm 64 in a, in a few weeks' time, and you don't ever grow up. Yeah, right. Stay I'm, curious. I, 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 I've got I've got this incurable um, condition. It's called the Peter Pan syndrome. <laughs> got to keep it fun, I'm, right? I, I'm a big kid. I really am. <laughs> so is my husband. Yeah. yeah, you got to. I mean, it's <laughs> too short to grow up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I really had uh, like this this uh, midlife crisis, and I didn't buy a um, like a Ferrari or anything, but I closed my business and um, just started blogging and writing. I was always blogging with my photography business, but yeah. started to just venture into personal development and 
started to share what I was learning about spirituality and just my own, my own grief was really coming up to around that time, all that old stuff. And so I was really working on myself a lot. Um, I spent a good five years um, really diving into who I was because I felt really screwed up at that point. Um, That's when I was still using alcohol um, in a not healthy way. And um, I just, I had another loss and that kind of opened, opened up a can of worms for me and realized I wasn't okay. And then that's when I found grief recovery and grief recovery is ultimately what really transformed my heart and my grief really changed my life. Yeah. And then that led to Reiki energy healing. I'm a Reiki master and everything that I've done or accomplished or have called into my life since working on my grief has been because I've worked on my grief because I think so often grief is a clarifier for us. We start to ask ourselves those bigger questions and um, when we're in it, we're kind of disconnected from ourselves and our intuition and we can't really see ourselves clearly or others clearly. Mm -hmm. And once I addressed all of that, I had a lot more clarity about, about who I was and, and what I was really meant for in the work that I could do and what I could offer the world in a deeper way, deeper, more meaningful way. And so that's why I do the grief work today and everything that I do. Mm. just it's full circle yeah so it's it's, so you managed to address all the dramas that you had when you was a kid that that you bottled up for donkey's years Mm -hmm. and 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 going through the midlife crisis has has brought it to the front Mm -hmm. and and you found a way of of dealing with it so you you're here now and teaching people, or or, or you assisting people, how, how do you how do you how do you go about that? In the well, first place? I I was really still kind of rejecting that part of myself, that part that I'm really empathic and I can really sit with people in their deepest pain, and it not like it's not something that I'm uncomfortable with. Like I I'm very comfortable sitting with people in their pain. Mm. I always have been. Um, and, but I've always kind of rejected that um, part of myself in a way because I wasn't, I couldn't see that clearly either. Right. I couldn't yeah. see that part of me. And um, I had started a new business called the unleashed creative and I knew what I wanted to do with it. And, and I'm a very strategic person. And so I wanted to help people like, because I, I knew the photography business, so I kind of wanted to assist creatives in their businesses. Um, but that was kind of not really going anywhere. And then I had a conversation with um, a good friend who um, does like websites and stuff. Just a one-off conversation. She's like, you wrote a book, right, about grief? And I said, yeah. Why are you not pursuing working as in grief? Hmm. Huh. Good question. <laughs> you know, you, you can't see, yeah. you can't see the label when you're inside the jar. 
Yeah. So good question. Just, well presented. <laughs> yeah, she she presented a question that it was like a no brainer to her. But to me, it was like, mm. I, I just couldn't see it. And Boy. the unleashed heart was born. And it's and been full down a new path. It did. It yeah. really did. That one conversation really did. How long did that take to take off? Once you've identified it and, and uh, I guess. Yeah. Within uh, yeah. two months. So before I even found grief recovery, I was going to go on this path. Right. So I was developing something um, myself. It was basically um, like an E series or like an E like email support E newsletter yeah. type like program or whatever. And um just to support grievers wherever they are. And, um, but within two months, I just, I, I really just, I knew that there was stuff res residual within me that needed to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And so I just went to Google and I found grief recovery and signed up and came home after I was certified and came home and I started doing groups right away. And it's, yeah, it just kind of took off. And then we had COVID so that changed things and ended up, um, but it was a blessing in disguise for me because I was able then to take additional training mm -hmm. and um, we actually now can offer grief recovery online because of COVID, you know, it, it so, made a lot of businesses rethink how they do business and yeah. yeah. So, so how long did it take you to get certified? How long what, did you have to go away on a course or? I did. Um, I ended up going to Austin, Texas. Um, and the training itself was it's over four days. It's like an intensive and yeah. you go through the program yourself. Yeah. And they have, they have a program where you can do it in two days and that's not for everybody. And that's the aspect of it that they bring to the certification training is like you do the program in two days and it's like drinking from a fire hose. You're like, a so I addressed all of, I addressed like my most emotionally charged grief of over 30 years in two days. And I, on the plane, when I got there the day before training, I, cause I had a couple days, I went a couple days early and I stayed a couple days after just to enjoy Austin a little bit. Mm. And the day, the morning of my training, I woke up and I had the craps and I was puking. <laughs> and it was like this, it, it really was like this purge before the purge. Yeah. I physically was, I, I physically got sick and that's not uncommon actually. Um, and you think that was the the anticipation? Did you anxiety? I, was. Of, I think of it was going into this this yeah. Did you I, have an idea of what you were going into to start? Not, you know, I I knew the outline and I'd actually read the book too that we use in the program because the initial training I signed up for had been canceled. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't planning to go to Austin, but I I knew this is what I needed personally. I knew it's what I needed. And so I signed up and I went to Austin. So I had read the book already and so i had and good thing i did because i was able to follow along and i knew what the trainer was talking about but that was horrible <laughs> i mean it was <laughs> it was the most incredible and horrible experience at the same Sounds time fairly brutal to me 
Yeah. But you know what? I went home an entirely different person than when I mm. went there. It was, it was the most transformative experience for me. It was like a mountain was off my shoulders emotionally and this emotional yeah. mountain was off my shoulders because I was so angry. I was an angry child. I was an angry mm. teenager. I was an angry adult. It's just, I bottled it. I just bottled yeah. it all. And so it was that, that coming out is yeah, for the first time in over 30 years. Right. It was, yeah, yeah I physically got sick. So that, that kind of, uh, <laughs> They got you on this road now to where you are. Yeah. But, you know, so, I was determined, though. I, the, I, she was, because I was already there, right? So I said, let's line up some chairs. I'm going to lay on the chairs. She got me some Dramamine. And I, <laughs> I literally was laying on the floor at first. I was not going to not do it, you know? But yeah, it was, yeah, it changed my life despite all that. Yeah. So what are you offering now then? Yeah. So you've got your website, um, The Unleashed Heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do a lot you've of... You've gone through two years of COVID, so yeah. you've had to adapt yeah. to be able to do it. I mean, that must be... It must be really difficult to, to try and manage somebody's grief on the internet. You would think, but with, it's not. Without seeing them in person. Or don't we see each other on Zoom. We see each other on Zoom. We connect on Zoom. It's yeah. it's um my program. So in the process of deal working with grievers, I, I felt like, and even personally, it's like grief recovery is amazing in it in and of itself. And it addresses grief specifically. It's evidence-based to do that. It's mm -hmm. proven to do that, and it does. But then what happens after that, right? Because when you answer once you've addressed the grief, you ask yourself these bigger questions. What do I want to do with my life? Well, what now? Yeah. What's next? But grief recovery didn't answer that. And so I ended up finding what's called UMAP. And UMAP is essentially, we, we, it helps uncover your top five strengths, what your values are, your skills, your preferred skills, and how you're wired. And all of those things together, these four pillars, create what's called a UMAP. And that is actually was life affirming for me that I'm on the right path. But for the clients that I took that took them through, I took them through grief recovery and then UMAP last year. Mm. Um, I found that that was the missing piece for me. That was the missing piece in the work mm. that I was doing. So I've combined these two programs into one and I call it do grief differently. And it's 12 sessions. And so, you know, that when you start working with me, we're going to meet 12 weeks once mm -hmm. a week and you'll have a transformative experience and you'll have tools and new information that you can keep for the rest of your life. Brilliant. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's it then you've, you've, you've kind of cracked this new model and um, do you see, do you do, do you see people in person or is it now just because it's you can do it over Zoom, you, you, you do it that way? Um, actually, you know, I can do it in person. Um, I did up until COVID work with yeah. grievers in person um, in groups, but I can also do groups online. Mm. So um, 
yeah, it's pretty incredible. You would think that it's not as much of a connection, but it really, I'm, I've had clients that are in other parts of the world and it's just amazing what we can do, the connection that we can still create and I can still sit with people through their hardest losses Mm. and most challenging relationships and help them navigate it and get to the other side and, and feel lighter and, and happier because of it. Fantastic. I guess it's, it's like, um, it's like having a trauma. Um, I don't know whether the Americans have it, but we have it in the British military. If, if, if guys have, been out and they've had a trauma well well any sort of trauma it doesn't need to be military but um something like a, a, a severe car accident or or you're seeing your mates blown up that sort of thing we have a process we call it trim which is trauma incident management and you go in sort of 72 hours after that incident and you record the incident you talk to the people and you tell them the way that they're feeling. It's not unusual to have those feelings. And then you do a follow-up sort of 30 days later to see if those feelings have changed and how they're dealing with it. Um, and if, if if they're still sort of struggling at coping and, and that's also not unusual. Um, and then you're going at 72 days and, and all the while you, you're assessing and when you do the seventy-two day follow-up, you um, by then you you know whether they're going to cope with it or not, and you can sign post them on to sort of professionals that'll um, take them on. And trying to catch a, that early saves that that in onset of PTSD later in life down the road, and that's the way the British military are doing it. Yeah, if if they'll be honest about how they're feeling. It's, yeah, it's 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 really really difficult. Um, but it's it's and it's getting people to talk about it, um, particularly those that are involved in 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 a particular incident to get them to talk through what they've seen and it's and and to to let them know that it's okay to talk about it. It's not unusual to, the way that the feelings that they they're going to have. So, and that that's that's. I guess a way of dealing with grief as well. Um, so there you go. That's that's what happens on this side. Yeah. And, yeah, and I think one of the biggest components of grief recovery is, or even addressing grief at all, is taking action. Because yeah. time just passes. It's the action that you take in time that really matters. And so whatever that action looks like, it's not using alcohol to feel better. It's not gambling or shopping or, you know, any other of these short-term energy relieving behaviors that we kind of turn to when we're feeling down and we want to avoid, and you know, we want to avoid what we're feeling. Um, We resort to behaviors to feel better. And if we can have the awareness around what those are, we then can recognize and change yeah. that behavior, right? Yeah. Take action, different action. So. Hmm. Well, 
I think we've had quite a chat, actually. Yeah, my life story <laughs> in under an hour. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, what do you call it? The uh, the highlights in an hour. <laughs> but it's felt like three lifetimes in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just thank you so much for for sharing it with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories.